I want to welcome everyone here to Mountain Lion Podcast, and today I have three special guests from Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire, and they did a workshop at the Denver Aptum meeting called A Curriculum to Train Residents to Respond to Patients Who Discriminate Against Healthcare Workers. And this was a very highly rated workshop at that meeting. Unfortunately, I was at another workshop and wasn't able to make it and thought that this would be a great opportunity to share their material with all of Aptum and, in fact, AIM and people beyond um, that venue as well. And I want to welcome Ellen Eisenberg, Kelly Kiefer, and Katrina Soriano uh, to this podcast. And I just want to start by having each of you uh, introduce yourselves, and I should let our listeners know that we're trying to do this uh, in the COVID pandemic <laughs> via Zoom uh, after a glitch with WebEx. So we're moving on to our next venue here and hoping this works out. So why don't we go ahead and start uh, with Katrina, since it looks like your microphone is unmuted. So Katrina, if you could introduce yourself, what your where you went to medical school, residency, in fact, where you grew up as well, and then uh, what your current position is at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, or I guess Geisel School of Medicine is the official name. And then also, if you could add on there a little bit of what you like to do outside of medicine, that would be fantastic. Thank you, Paul, for inviting us to speak on your podcast. My name is Katrina Soriano, and I grew up in New Jersey, just 30 minutes from the Lincoln and Holland Tunnel. I went to undergrad at Wellesley College, just outside of Boston. I then attended medical school at Penn State University College of Medicine in literally the sweetest place on earth, Hershey, Pennsylvania. And then I completed my internal medicine residency at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, where I met Ellen and Kelly, learned from them, trained with them, and continue to work with them to this day. And I'm almost done with my one year as a chief medicine resident here at Dartmouth, and I look forward to staying on as one of the hospitalists come this July. Oh, excellent. And what do you like to do outside of medicine? I enjoy playing golf, tennis, road biking, trail running, and now I have a big passion for both card games and board games. Kelly, why don't you go next? Thanks, Paul. I'm Kelly Kiefer. Um, I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska for the most part and um, was an undergraduate at Johns Hopkins University and then went to medical school um, at the um, UC Berkeley UCSF joint medical program. Um, I came here to Dartmouth also to do my residency and then after my chief year I joined the general internal medicine faculty and um, basically never left. So I've been here ever since then. Uh, I am the vice chair for education in the Department of Medicine and I'm the director of our resident longitudinal clinic. And outside of medicine, basically I like to get outside, (laughs) which which I think you'll find is a common theme for many of us who uh, are attracted to Dartmouth and stay here. So I do, I I, I also am a runner and um, basically will do anything that lets me be outdoors. All right. And last but not least. So I'm Ellen Eisenberg. I went to college at University of Vermont and finished at Columbia and got a degree in nursing and did psychiatric nursing for about 10 years before I went back to medical school. And I went to uh, State University of New York in at Downstate. Um, I grew up in New York. And after I um, 
went to medical school. I did a general internal medicine residency at um, Boston City Hospital before it was part of the combined program. I then went on and did um, an ID fellowship and practiced primary care for a while before I moved up here where I joined the faculty at Dartmouth. I precept residents. I'm the interim section chief for general internal medicine. And what I like to do outside of here is, so I have horses and um, donkeys and I like to play with them. Um, I ride and I also drive the ponies. Um, so I too like to be outside. Excellent. <laughs> Sounds like a common theme there in New Hampshire. Okay, well, we'll go ahead and get started here. Thank you all for those introductions. Kelly, I was wondering if you could tell us what the basic learning objectives were for this workshop. And again, for our listeners, the title was A Curriculum to Train Residents to Respond to Patients Who Discriminate Against Healthcare Workers. So be interested in what the basic learning objectives were for the workshop, Kelly. About the learning objectives, I'm going to make sure that we're all on the same page when when we say the word workshop, because this is sort of a workshop about a workshop. <laughs> and so um, we we built this workshop um, to tell people about a workshop that we run here. Really, Ellen is the is the lead here for our residents. And so now I'm going to use the word workshop to mean the workshop that we delivered at the active meeting. And that really, what we hoped, like all good workshops, we hoped people would take away uh, sort of a toolbox. We wanted people to have some communication strategies um, for themselves as educators and also for their residents or other learners that they could use um, in response to patients who express um, bias or discrimination on the basis of race, sex, sexual orientation, religion, really uh, all of the things that people can um, express bias about. And then we hoped people would uh, would use the example of the, of the workshop we do for our residents to, um, to develop similar teaching for their own residents, um, either using simulation, which is what, what, what we use, or thinking about how to adapt our simulation-based workshop um, in their own environments. Um, and then related both to, the, to that, um, that delivery of, uh, of education in real settings and in practice settings, be able to coach or give feedback to learners about those communication skills. Okay, and, and I'm going to ask Ellen to extrapolate a little bit on the background to this topic in a second, um, but what was your overarching big picture goal for the attendees of the workshop to walk away from? Or I should say walk away from with. Our, our overarching big picture goal? I mean, I think we wanted people, so I think we recognized uh, people really see this as an important topic and see a real need for their learners and themselves. I think as faculty, we really see a need to better handle these really awkward, difficult, uncomfortable, sometimes painful situations to sort of be armed in advance. And so I think most fundamentally, we wanted the individuals attending the workshop to be sort of armed in advance with communication that they could um, use in those in those real life situations, and then hopefully they're also taking those those strategies and developing teaching in their own programs. Got it. 
Um, so Ellen, what, what is the background to this topic? Why is it so important? Tell me a little bit more about the background. Five years ago, I was working in the clinic and I was precepting an intern who came out of the room absolutely distraught. Um, the patient she had seen um, basically uh, started yelling at her and telling her to go back to where she came from. He didn't like the recommendations. And um, so he, he really was really throwing a lot of racial slurs at her. And those of us that were in the room, myself, so I was the preceptor and I knew that I needed and wanted to support her. I also knew that there was a lot of other people around that were really distressed. And I also knew there was this patient that was not well. And so I feel like I sort of um, got through it, but didn't have a structure and a way of thinking about it. And I, and so from there, which was actually five years ago, we, I started thinking about um, how could, I, I guess I needed to learn and sort of have a way of approaching it. But I also felt like the resident needed to feel empowered and, and have an approach um, to dealing with patients like this. Our population is very white and we have a lot more diversity in our residents, um, with our residents. And it was out of that, that I decided it would be worth, or I thought it would be worthwhile to um, develop the original workshop. And that's how it got started. I think, you know, in thinking about there's, how do you respond to the patient? How do you take how do you respond to the resident? How do you make sure that um, you're protecting everybody's right? And so it really, it really was from there that this began. And I, and I guess expanding a little bit beyond, or maybe even greatly beyond your your system, you know, basically because a New Hampshire is very fairly homogeneous, yet you have a very diverse population of residents on a national level. Why is this an important topic? Would you say, Ellen? It's not just New Hampshire anymore. I think it's across the country. Um, we're much more aware of um, gender discrimination, racial discrimination. You can just take a look at what's going on in the last couple of days. And I think people are talking about it a lot more and addressing it. There's much more of an emphasis on communication in medical education training than there used to be. So I, I think it's, it's a very current um, challenge. And uh, Katrina, I was wondering if you could tell us about whether there's a current standard approach recommended in the medical literature for when a patient requests a physician reassignment based on race or ethnic background. So there currently are a couple approaches that have been published in the medical literature that provide physicians with guidance as to what to do when patients request physician reassignment. So the first approach I'm going to talk about was published by Kamani Paul Emil in 2016 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And what he suggests is the first step is to see if a patient is acutely sick. If they have an emergent condition, it's okay for the physician to ignore and not address the biased or discriminatory statement, but to in fact stabilize the patient. Um, on the same note, if a patient comes in with some sort of cognitive impairment, it's important to figure out why they're cognitively impaired and then to treat it. Because one can imagine if you treat the acute delirium or psychosis, maybe the patient may not have those preferences to switch to a different physician. Then on the flip side of that, if a patient comes in to the hospital who's stable and has medical decision-making capacity and requests a physician reassignment, you can explore the reasons why. 
and you can actually accommodate it if it is culturally or ethically appropriate. For example, if a Muslim woman presented to the emergency department and refused to talk to or be examined by a male physician, then one can consider accommodating that request and finding a woman to perform the exam due to religious reasons. However, if you find that that request is based in bigotry, then that's a totally different algorithm. Kelly, I'm sure our listeners are hoping for some suggestions about useful language to respectfully address and redirect the conversation when a provider encounters these attitudes or behaviors. Can you give us a few examples of what uh, these suggested useful language tips are? Sure. So, I, I mean, I guess I'll first sort of um, take, take off from what Katrina was saying about the the dependence on the specifics of the situation. So, you know, sometimes the priority is really focusing on the patient's acute health crisis, just just doing that. Um, sometimes the focus needs to be on getting yourself or the learner out of the room. So in cases where there's a particularly egregious or upsetting comment or behavior, um, the right answer might be to, to leave the room and and then and then make a plan and go back later. But I think that for the vast majority of comments, you know, I think Ellen described a, a comment, a, a situation that was on uh, sort of an extreme end of the spectrum. The I think m- most of us experience the vast majority of these comments as a little less aggressive, a little less blatant, often microaggressions. And so using uh, the same types of approaches that you would use to address microaggressions in other settings, I think, is, is often the way to do this. So being curious and non-judgmental when you can, you know, I think being non-judgmental in the situation Ellen described is a little bit um, challenging, <laughs> but uh, because that what that patient said was wrong and unacceptable. Um, but in general, trying to be curious and non-judgmental and uh, approaching approaching the patient with the idea that you are trying to help them be their best selves, trying to allow them to have an open conversation. Uh, there's also, there's a great paper um, that came out actually after our, our initial resident workshop was developed, but then we've adapted some of that um, content uh, for the for the workshop written by Mega Shankar, who I believe was a resident at the University of Washington when it was published in JGME in 2019. Um, that has some really nice language for addressing microaggressions with patients. Um, I'll encourage anybody who's interested in this topic to read that paper. The kinds of things um, that she recommends and that I think we've found helpful are naming the behavior, naming it as inappropriate or unprofessional. And sometimes I think it helps to, uh, again, approach that from an element of surprise. I'm surprised you would say that, which allows the patient to maybe feel not, not, uh, criticized, but it's a little bit, or defensive, but it's a little question, questioning still. And um, uh, I, I wonder why you thought that would be an appropriate comment. So questioning and, and surprise. I think another important element is emphasizing your role as a health professional and inviting the patient to address things in a professional way. So I am here to focus on your health. I'm your doctor. Um, let's think about how we can make you well. Um, so emphasizing that's what you're here for. But again, also naming the behavior as inappropriate. That was not an appropriate thing to say. I'm going to ask you not uh, to, say, to say that again. And then I think describing your experience of the comment 
and, and how it felt to you. I think most of our patients, I mean, I, this is a, I think most women in medicine, we've had conversations with all our female residents. We've all experienced um, microaggressions directed towards us by patients pretty uniformly. And patients, for the most part, like all microaggressions, they don't intend it to be uh, insulting or negative. And when you tell them how you experienced that, when you said that, I felt disrespected, they they recognize that that's not what what they were aiming for. And most often they'll correct that. Certainly not always, uh, but most often they'll correct that when given the opportunity and when it's pointed out. And then especially I think if you're the attending or a team leader, um, or if other members of the interprofessional team have been the target of the comments, um, making sure to express confidence in every member of the team. So either broadly, if it's been a broadly directed comments, you know, I, I feel confident about the uh, confidence of every person involved in your care, or specifically towards an individual, if it's, you know, Sam is the doctor who's leading your care today, or better yet, Dr. Jones is the doctor who's leading your care today uh, and is highly qualified. And um, I encourage you to um, show him the same respect that, that uh, I am showing him. So being really supportive of the people around you and explicit. Hmm. Okay. Um, and Ellen, I was wondering if you could describe the resident workshops that you and your colleagues do at Geisel in the internal medicine residency program to address the issue when patients discriminate against their healthcare providers. And also as a sort of a tag-on question to that, it, are you just doing these workshops for the, the residents in internal medicine residency, or are you also doing them for other GME programs, uh, as well as for the undergraduate section of the medical school there? The workshop that we do is for um, our interns uh, during their academic half day. I usually wait till about midway through the year before they do it, so they have had some experience clinically. We So we have an afternoon with them. We start with a didactic session um, in which we describe sort of the approach that we want them to learn how to take, similar to what uh, Katrina was describing. And so after the didactic session, there's um, a series of um, four different patient experiences. We use simulated patients, um, and we have a gender case, um, a gender bias case, um, a class bias case, and then two cases um, that involve uh, racial or um, racial discrimination. One of them is an acute, a patient who's acutely ill, and the other is a patient who's chronically ill, sort of, um, so that we can give them the experience of um, dealing with someone who's really sick and you just need to go ahead and take care of them versus someone who you have more time to understand what's going on behind their comments. I've also included a student so that um, the resident has a chance to both experience it directly and also um, model behavior for a student and also stand up for the student and um, make sure that the student knows that this is not acceptable behavior. So, and this is done with a one-way mirror so that we can, um, there's a group that's observing them. One of the, so the facilitator is a, either a chief resident, Katrina has done this a couple of times, or one of our senior residents, and they then go into the, into the room and um, there's a feedback session that they have, they debrief um, and give the intern um, some feedback about what they 
what the experience in the room was. Um, we also have the standard, the simulated patient actually step out of role, but give feedback as if they were, as if they were the patient, so that the intern knows what the experience was like for the um, patient as well. So that they go through a series of four of these, and and then the group comes back to a larger room, and there's a pretty lively discussion about what the whole thing was like, because it's not, I don't know that they were expecting um, to have this experience. And we have the standardized patients come into the room and also sort of include them in the discussion. What we were able to do with the second, this is now, I've done it three times. And the second and third ones we videoed. So we were able to use the videos um, for the workshop that we did at Aptum. We've done it a couple of times now for the interns. I was asked to do it for the, our neurology resident this past year. So we did that. We're planning to do it for program director's retreat, but um, COVID came. <laughs> and um, yep. the same thing with SIGM. We were all set to do this, um, to do the, this a larger workshop for SIGM as well, but we didn't get the opportunity. Mm -hmm. and, and how about for the undergraduate venue? Are you doing it for the students at all? No, we, ha we have not yet done it for the students. We certainly have offered um, and will be, yeah. So when they're on their academic half day and going through this workshop, do all the participants in the academic half day do all the interns rotate through all four stations, or is it basically a few of them and then there's observers behind the, uh, the one-way or two-way mirror? I guess it's a one-way mirror. So every one of the interns gets to have an experience. They don't get to have all four, but we make sure that every one of them goes in unless, unless they're uncomfortable and they don't want to. But so they all do get to have an experience either with a gender case, you know, a class bias case. It's a little bit challenging because you have to make sure you have enough women to have the gender case work. And so I think probably the learning objectives for the for the interns that are going through this are, are pretty self-explanatory to make them, as was you guys were explaining earlier, to make them better at dealing with these situations uh, and improve their communication skills. But are you actually in any way measuring the outcomes of how they either feel about these sessions or, I mean, it would be hard, I guess, to follow them around for weeks waiting for one of these situations to arise. But what, what kind of outcomes have you monitored for the sessions? We do a pre-assessment when we start the workshop and then do a second assessment when the workshop's over. And we should be doing a six-month assessment, which we we haven't we haven't done yet. And, and what is what is the post? I think you're exactly right about how challenging it. I mean, the ideal situation would be to um, to do more than get subjective uh, input from the learners, which is sort of uniformly positive. You know, I think mm -hmm. so. Ellen, I think, didn't tell you that she she actually was invited, asked to come back to the second year residents. To, to our second and third year residents for their noon conference to do sort of an extension of this, not in simu the simulation, but to sort of add on skills around um, being a team leader or being a teacher and dealing with this as a teacher. So the residents themselves are saying there's great value and we would love to measure more direct educational outcomes in terms of application of the skills. It's really hard to do that in real life, number one, just 
you don't know when it's going to happen, which is exactly why you want to be prepared in advance. And uh, it would be tough to get everybody back, even for a simulation retest. Mm -hmm. It's just not something we have the capacity to do given time constraints. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would imagine it would be, yeah, it would be, it's, it's sort of like, I don't know if you guys have read the book Crucial Conversations, but basically they describe how you'll go through your workday and you'll be talking to somebody and if you're conscious of it, you'll suddenly realize you're having this like essential or crucial conversation with someone and you're, you're in the midst of it when you recognize it. This would be the same type of thing that you know probably happens here and there and gosh the idea of actually monitoring your trainees to see if they're they're better at it versus asking them how they perceive the sessions um, is probably as far as you would be able to get but when, what, can i just add also yeah one of the things that um i think is really kind of neat is we have the same standardized patients for the last three years um because when we ask them, they feel like it's so valuable to be teaching this um, and sharing, at, you know, and it's a really challenging role for people who are not um, biased or, you know, don't discriminate, but they come back year after year to um, to do this with us. And, and where do you find those standardized patients? I have a great connection in the Sim Center, and um, mm -hmm. the director down there is so on board with doing this kind of simulation work, if you want to call it simulation work. And so he interviews them. We spend a good several hours teaching them. They don't get actual scripts, but they definitely get a sense of what we want them to do when the resident sort of does something right versus, um, you know, they would escalate if the resident um, was really having more trouble. So we put a lot of time into training them and um, they're really committed. Excellent. So, Kelly, why do you think your workshop was so highly regarded at the APTA meeting, other than that you guys were brilliant presenters? <laughs> <laughs> so I think a couple things. I, I do think it was a really interactive workshop. I think we, you know, if anyone who's been to workshops or created workshops recognizes getting people engaged in the conversation is important for having them, you know, retain the learning and meet their own learning need. Why was it really engaging? Well, I think number one, people really wanted to be there. People are ready to, uh, to address this topic and um, want these skills and want to think about how to help their residents in these settings. So part of it is just, it's the right topic at the right time. Ellen alluded to the videos that we use. So we, we um, screened a, a number of video clips that we could use. Um, I have to give a huge shout out to the residents, to our residents who were who um, gave us permission to use these um, video clips of them in a vulnerable moment interacting with patients. And, uh, and that I'll give a shout out to Ellen for making it feel less vulnerable to them. And so we use those video clips and have a chance to talk about what we're seeing what we're seeing in the interaction, what the patient, simulated patient is doing, what the resident is doing. Think about how the language uh, that the resident is using uh, is effective or could be more effective. And then think about giving feedback to the resident and supporting them. So I think having those video clips really gets people feeling like they're there and, and, and uh, doing some of this practice around 
what words am I going to say here when this comment comes out? Yeah, I'm sure that those the, uh, program directors would love to get their hands on those videos. Um, how did you? How did you? Um, Make the were the videos filmed in the Sim Center basically? That, that's right. When when we run the simulation center simulation sessions um, with the residents, we video the whole thing. Now it is not videoed for the purpose of um, publication. So um, from an artistic or aesthetic perspective, it may not be perfect. The camera may be sort of you know off to the side, and um, and, and that's not what we're aiming for. It's um, we're aiming for being able to use it for educational purposes and not having it be obtrusive. And it, it, it provides an opportunity that if, um, the resident could go back and watch it. We aren't using it in real time in that way with, with residents, but it has been useful for us to be able to use it for, um, for teaching other people when simulation isn't an option. Mm -hmm. hmm. Excellent. So I think we addressed one of my big questions uh, really uh, around this interview was, you know, why now? And I think you guys have really explained that earlier, the why now, particularly with events in, in Minneapolis and Central Park in New York City. And, but what I wanted to do is just briefly ask you guys to critique um, a situation that came up for me not too long ago on the wards where I was the attending physician and we we're seeing a patient and one of the interns who wasn't directly involved in the patient's care, um, who was African-American, uh, was answering a nursing call. So we entered the room. I do all bedside rounds for the most part on my rounds. And it was a patient who we'd had for about a day or two, so didn't know him super well. And the intern came in to the room about three minutes into my talking with the patient and asking him how he was doing that day. And the intern stepped up to the foot of the bed. Um, he's this very engaged, enthusiastic person wanting to learn everything he can from every patient. And in the middle of answering my one of my questions, the patient turned and looked at me and looked at the intern and said, what's he doing here? And the entire team was gathered around the bed. And it, again, it was like that crucial conversations moment where suddenly it sunk in what I thought he meant, but wasn't 100% sure that's what he meant. And to which I paused for a moment and said, he's one of your doctors. He's an intern that's involved in helping to take care of you. And then he said, okay. And then the conversation moved on. And when I was describing this to one of our other faculty, they were like, boy, you did not handle that very well. And we ended up not having the long conversation later about what feedback he had for me. But I was wondering your analysis of that particular handling of that situation and how you think I could have done better with that. Because honestly, I we have this, in, in, we're the opposite of, of Hanover. We've got this it's the third most diverse city in the United States, Sacramento, and according to the U.S. News and World Report. But it was the, one of the first episodes I'd, I'd encountered in the last few years like that. And, you know, I really did walk away thinking, boy, I, I, I need some training about how to deal with this. Thoughts? I, I don't know. I, I think your response... Um 
uh, identifying that this is a doctor involved in your care. I think that's really important. And maybe naming the doctor. Again, this is, you know, Dr. X. He is a member of our team. And, and describing what his role on the team is. I think that's that would have been my first response to, uh, in a way that says just, uh, I don't need to say any more about this is who this person is and why they are obviously involved you know why why they have a reason to be here i i wonder if there was an opportunity to ask the patient to just express that curiosity why do you ask Mm -hmm. because it's really impossible for us to know for sure what was in the patient's head but but why do you ask and then i and i don't know what the right answer to that is it's it's sort of so determined by all the other nuances of the dynamic the only other thing i would ask is whether you addressed it with the resident outside of the room at a later point to ask him how he experienced that because i think that's the piece we we don't really that's the next level work that ellen does but it's not part of this workshop as directly i'm not sure i would have gone any further than what you did in the room because the patient accepted the fact that this was a, a doctor and he was part of the team. If you went any further, I'm not sure what you would have gotten. And remember, you have a learner there that um, at that point probably was okay. But I agree with Kelly. I think the biggest thing is leaving the room and at some point having a conversation with that learner and ask, and trying to explore what their, what their experience of that was. Um, because basically what you told the patient was that he's here belongs here and that's how it is mm-hmm. yeah to answer your question no i did not end up uh later sort of decompressing with the intern to see how he experienced the moment katrina any thoughts yeah so to piggyback on what both ellen and kelly were saying i think paul that you know you recognize that this could be a potentially traumatic moment and experience. And I think that is really important for faculty and supervisors to recognize. And again, picking, picking back on what Ellen and Kelly were saying, I think that the debriefing session and taking time to follow back with the team, especially with the learner involved who may or may not have been affected is important because it empowers them to think about and reflect about the experience and empowers them to think about, oh, what strategies could I potentially use again if I'm in a similar position in that hot seat? Maybe come up with a plan with them to touch base and follow up with them in a couple weeks to make sure they're doing okay. And also to take that time to reinforce with the team expectations from yourself, um, from the institution, and also when it's appropriate to escalate these um, incidences to, let's say, administration, risk management, or the program leadership. Excellent. Those are those are great suggestions. Um, I'm sort of hoping it never happens again, but I'm sure it will. <laughs> and uh, I feel I'm better prepared for it if I do. So uh, for the three of you, um, any last comments for our listeners about this very, very relevant, timely and important topic? So my comment was thinking about how we would deliver this going forward if we need to um, do this somewhat remotely or virtually, because I'd like us to continue doing it. It's just challenging to figure out how to do it, but I'm sure that we can. And I think my comment for my comment for the um, the listening audience is 
uh, don't hesitate to do this because you aren't an expert. Just to be very clear, although we appreciate that you asked for our advice, none of us are experts. And it's too important an issue and there's, there's uh, too much need for our residents and other learners to have these skills. Don't hesitate. Uh, just start doing it. Trust one another. Find, find a good group to work with. Trust one another um, and, and do it. Because I think that's our, been our experience. And it sounds okay, like... Just have to jump in and do it. Yeah, it sounds like there's a growing body of literature, at least, to help guide us with it as well, from what you were describing. Could, could... Yes, for sure. There's a lot in the literature, um, uh, sort of increasingly over time. And I, I, I would the paper that I referenced, I think, is a really great one. Um, for actually a question that you asked, talking about uh, what to do after, it really talks about preparing with your team in advance, just with the assumption um, that this will happen. Sorry, Paul, I know you wish it wouldn't. But <laughs> it would never happen, but assuming that it will, and then making a plan for what, how to approach it, and then um, thinking about, uh, you know, how to debrief afterwards. Mm-hmm. Five years ago, when this started, um, there really was mostly anecdotal um, literature, a lot of stories similar to the one that you told us. And I think the Schenker article is really um, the most recent one, but there is a growing body, but mostly it started with just anecdotal um, evidence. It's fascinating, given how long it's been around, you know. Uh, that it's that it's finally finally coming into the spotlight, I guess. Katrina, any last comments for our listeners? Yeah, sure. I think you know when I was reading more about this topic and speaking with the other residents, what I found the most heartbreaking was how prevalent these experiences with discrimination are to the point where residents are like, "Oh yeah, this is normal. This is something I deal with. I just brush it off." And I was trying to figure out why that is. And I think part of it is the fact that with medical education, we are taught a lot and we're assessed both written and in person with standardized patients on how to modify our own behavior or filter what we say in order to respond with compassion and empathy to a patient's complaints in order to make them feel safe and secure. But we don't necessarily get the training on what we do when we're the victim of discrimination. So I think that may play a part of this. I know that, you know, I'm very thankful to Kelly and Ellen for inviting me to participate in this workshop because after I learned these strategies and actually used them on the wards, I know that I felt empowered to actually address the comment in the moment. And it was a really great way to advocate for both myself and the team. So I really encourage everyone else to get involved in a workshop and see how they can tailor it to their own program because I think the residents and the trainees would really appreciate it. Well, I want to thank all three of you for taking the time today. I know you're all very, very busy and um, it's tricky arranging this in the times of COVID (laughs) and distance learning and such, but uh, thank you all very much. Thank you, Paul.